0: Welcome to the Frontline Innovators podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and super excited for today's episode. We have a little bit of a different scenario where we actually have two guests to introduce. So our first guest is the Director of Organizational Change Management at Simplot Company. Please welcome Jennifer Martindale. Hi, Justin.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: I'm also going to introduce a second role, but I want to introduce our second guest too. Um, our second guest is a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Please welcome to the show, Stacey Gibbons. Hello, Stacey.
2: Hi, great to be here with you.
0: And I wanna share that they are both co-founders and partners of a new firm called Adaptable. And we're gonna get a chance to hear a little bit more about Adaptable and the practice that they've set up around change management. And I can't wait to uh, to dig into that a little bit further. So thank you both for being here today. Let's go ahead and start with the question that we start every podcast with, which is what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless or frontline workforce today? Jennifer, I'll toss it over to you to uh, get your response first.
1: Awesome. Yeah, um, I think probably the biggest challenge is um, could be boiled down into a one size fits all OCM approach, and oftentimes for folks who work uh, in a change practitioner scenario, a lot of that planning comes from kind of an HQ perspective, the the person at the desk um, who's comes into the office every day, is reading email, has that commonplace, and that one size fits all doesn't always work for the deskless worker. At Simplot, we have cattle ranches and uh, what's well, called a horse hotel, which is wild horses that are cared for at Simplot, and we literally have deskless workers who are whose title is cowboy, and they ride horses all day. So, a one-size fits all approach to preparing someone for change doesn't fit for someone whose workday looks more like that. And so i that would be my answer to that.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. And you're actually the second podcast guest in sequence to give that answer. and i you couldn't have listened to his episode yet because I think it just dropped today. Oh. Um, but, but another one of our guests just said the the exact same thing about, you know, OCM can't be really thought of as a, a one size fits all approach. Yes. So I, I think you're spot on and, and Stacey, I want to see if you have anything to add to that before we move on.
2: I, I agree with Jennifer. And I think a lot of the ways that we navigate that can be rooted in some of the human behavior pieces, which Jennifer and I have really tried to bring together, um, to give a comprehensive overview of what change can really look like. For organizations and understanding your people, because you're in different places.
0: Yeah. Well, that th- this is really the theme of what Frontline Innovators is all about. We we started this podcast because we felt like there was uh, a lack of conversation around the uniqueness of different elements of the workforce. And it's it's interesting to me that the deskless workforce seems to be the ones often left out of that conversation. And yet those of us that work around those scenarios know that they actually represent the overwhelming majority of the global workforce. And yet we have a tendency because a lot of the people that are making decisions, as you said earlier, Jennifer, making those decisions from HQ, we feel like everybody else looks and works like us when in reality, most other people do not. So it's, uh, it's why we started the podcast. It's why we want to continue to have this conversation. We want to help raise awareness of this challenge and then obviously, you know, spend as much time as we can talking about what are some of the, the ways that we can better serve the men and women that are on the front lines and take into account their unique circumstances and unique backgrounds and things like that. So thank you for being here today. Let's, let's get right into it. I, I'd like to share with our audience a little bit about your backgrounds. Again, Jennifer, why don't you go first and and tell us a little bit about how you came into the role that you're in today, and and why you just started, decided to co-found this new practice.
1: Yeah, so I my OCM journey really began at Boise State University. It preceded Simplot. Um, at Boise State, I led the Office of Continuous Improvement, which is a unit that implements and supports Oracle Cloud products for the campus community. And that, that's really where I started getting a deep dive into OCM and that people side of change and how a one size doesn't fit all. And the, so, some of the Oracle products that we were implementing are they just come out of the box the way they are. There's not a lot of opportunity for customizing. And so that's a different kind of OCM approach when you don't get to make a decision about how the application will work. And so it was really interesting to me um, and I wanted to pursue that in more depth. So I moved to Simplot about two and a half years ago with the organizational Enterprise Organizational Change Management Unit. And in that role, it really is heavily focused on organizational change management, so provided the opportunity of going into a deeper dive on stakeholder assessments and managing stakeholder expectations and change impact analysis and organizational readiness and sustainment. Um, I really love this discipline because we're in such a constant high volume change all the time. And when you think about change in the workplace, that's so unique because it's high stakes in the workplace. You know, there's identity associated with what you do. It's where you earn an income, where you care for your family. It's how you get health insurance. And so the stakes are really high. It's different than other kinds of changes that can happen in your life. And so being in a role where you can really help people navigate that change in such a high, urgent context is really um fulfilling for me. I think there's a lot of value to that and I it's really important to me the kind of impact that I'm making and I feel like I can make a great impact here. Um adaptable you, you want me to answer that part of it too or you I do. Want to hear No, I do. I was okay. going
0: to I was going to remind you that I wanted to hear about that too. So good. Yes.
1: Ahead. So adaptable um this story my sister and Emily Lowry we'll do a little shout out to Emily Lowry. And Stacy and I did a conference in May, it's called Influence Her, and the focus of that conference was all about change. So how do you navigate change, scale your team, et cetera. And just the process of that, for me, I thought, oh my gosh, we can take this to a whole different place. And actually, Stacy and I were sitting on the first night, sitting next to each other, and I just said, we can do so much with this. We can take this somewhere else. And that was kind of the beginning from my perspective of, of that. There's a, I focus in the ag industry, and I think this applies to change in really any industry. And so the opportunity for that to bring it and really kind of raise the boats, grow the capability it across the um across different industries is really interesting to me.
0: That's amazing. I want to come back to, uh, I have a couple of questions that I want to dig in a little bit deeper on adaptable and, and just some of the philosophy that you're bringing into your practice. But why don't we give uh, Stacy a chance to yeah. share a little bit about your background and help us understand how this, uh, convergence of two amazing professionals has come together here.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to, um, we're kind of an odd pairing, but it works really well together. We've found <laughs> we're from very different industries. Um, I have um, a background in public health. I studied public health and then from public health moved um, into the psychology field. So I got a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling and have since then um, built a private practice where I, you know, Jen does deep dive into organizations. I do deep dive into people. And So we found this parallel process that her and I kind of engage in of, in order to work with an organization, I need to understand my people. And in order to understand my people, I need to have a greater understanding of human behavior and how people interact with change. And so when we did this conference together, we found that we really think about a lot of these principles similarly, just at different levels. So a lot of what I focus on is how am I as an individual understanding how I change? How am I understanding my relationship with change? And how am I understanding the ways that I engage in the process of change? And on an outer level, Jen focuses a lot on how do organizations relate to change and how do their people relate to change? And so we found as we kind of married these two concepts is that there's a lot of crossover in terms of how leaders as I, myself as a people leader, how do I understand my relationship with change? Because that impacts the way that I understand my people and my relationship with my organization and how I lead them through change.
0: That's amazing. I, I, I And want... then okay. in the
1: OCM space, change happens at the individual level, which is a pretty important component. And seeing individuals as individuals, like the deskless worker, the unique nuances of that particular worker, change has to happen at that level. And that's another place where we really come together, Stacy and I.
0: So I, I'm going to pose this as a challenge, not because I'm trying to be uh, d- disagreeable to, to the approach, but really because I don't understand it and I want to understand it better. So I completely Appreciate and can empathize with the need at an individual level, and Stacy, especially the way you talked about it, you know, it, it's looking at it from the the people side of things and how I'm going to adapt to change. And I I kind of get that when we're talking at a micro level or a super small team, the individualized uh, discussion that it might uh, warrant for for change to take place in a smaller team makes perfect sense. Where I struggle to understand the the practical implications of what you're saying is when we're talking about change at scale. Most of the organizations that we've had represented here on this podcast, most of those that I deal with in my day job are organizations with thousands or tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. And so I struggle to, to really think through like what you said feels good. It feels right. It makes perfect sense at a micro level. How in the world Do you scale individualized support for change?
1: Well, some of that comes in with the tools that we have. So it can um, make some of that work easier to navigate. And also a large organization. I mean, Simplot is 15,000 employees across the globe, but it's not 15,000 individuals across the globe. They, we roll up into small groups. We roll up under a supervisor. We roll up into departments. We roll up into business units. And so engaging at that level, pulling people leaders in, considering them as a separate stakeholder group, making sure they understand their role, supporting their teams through change, understanding how they experience change so that they're in a better position to support their teams through change is part of the um, superpower of that. If you were if you're thinking of, um, you can't navigate change from afar via an email. You really have to engage with those boots on the ground, those people leaders and those individuals who are closer to the groups that are changing to the frontline groups that are changing and having tools that support them.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's get more specific on that. And I, I want to use okay. one of the roles that you talked about today, cause I think it'll just be fun. Um, I, so I get what you're saying about kind of, um, pushing the change philosophy and leadership skills down as far as we can in the organization so that everybody can be on the same page about how this needs to be administered or facilitated. Um, But let's use the cowboy role for an example, right? So somebody is a supervisor of those cowboys Mm -hmm. and he or she, do we call them cowboys or cow people? I just yeah.
1: Well, the title's cowboy. Yeah. Okay. All right. But that's so, a very good question. I'm going to explore when we're
0: done. That's yes. good. I hadn't thought about that until the words it, just came out of my mouth. It might so, be gender
1: neutral, I. but yeah, it's cowboy.
0: Okay. So for today, we'll stick with cowboy. And if somebody wants to correct us, they can. Um, but somewhere in the organization is a supervisor of those cowboys. And And what I have found is that in a lot of frontline worker roles, person that is now the supervisor or manager of those people may have just come out of the role themselves Mm -hmm. and so they they come into being a supervisor of other drivers or cowboys or other you know roles on the front lines so by definition they're the least experienced leaders in the organization right Mm
2: -hmm.
0: not not saying that they don't have capability or the capacity to be a better leader but they are least experienced in many cases by definition because it may be their first leadership role and yet we put this burden of supporting the front facing people of the organization on the least experienced leaders in the org. So that's where I really want to kind of like understand what are the tools that we can be using to better facilitate that so that we can help them become better leaders faster and not jeopardize initiatives inside the organization as we're waiting for them to reach a level of maturity. Talk me through that a little bit.
1: Exactly. Yeah. When I, when thinking through your stakeholder assessment which is one of the tools that we use, you'll need to think about people leaders and their teams as stakeholder groups. So you'll need to call them out separately and and plan through how you want to leverage that particular group in the change initiative. And when you're thinking through a training needs assessment, which is another tool that we use, then what are the skills that and the knowledge that the people leaders need to be successful? And it's possible that in addition to understanding the change and understanding maybe the new tool that's coming out or the new policy or whatever the change trigger is that they also understand their role in a change initiative so upskilling that people leader may be part of what's required for the change initiative to stick you can use um, different methods for delivering that change but calling it out and creating awareness that the people the role that the people leader plays You know, they are in the best position to understand where resistance is going to come from, from their team, what kind of communication channels are going to make sense for their team, what kind of impacts there will be that are generated by that change trigger. So making sure that people leaders understand their unique role is is really a big part of it. We often do that with upskilling people leaders first because they're such a critical part of that. And then meeting them where they are and making sure that they have the tools and the training that work for them. So what I mean by that is if we're training a people leader of cowboys, we don't want to ask them to come into HQ and sit in a lab, in a training lab, to learn about leadership. You go out to... The ranch and you have a more informal conversation and you bring tools that work for them and you even figure out those tools in partnership with them what's a good way for us to communicate with you with our cowboys this some of the best communication channels are posters that we put on a board in the housing in their kitchen because lodging is part of the compensation for the cowboys and so they all come there and so Having information there in the kitchen is the best way to do that. And we know that out of conversations with people leaders, you know, what's the best way for me to get, to share this information with teams.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Stacey, I want to flip this around and get your take on the individual side. So again, just using the role that we're sticking with here, the Cowboys, what does your background, how can you help us understand the perspectives that they may have when change is coming down the pipe. I have some beliefs and and just some evidence I've seen from talking with some of these folks myself, but I'm not a trained psychologist. Uh, so I'd like to hear kind of your perspective on how they feel about that change that I think is often coming down to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Talk me through that a little bit.
2: Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point of how do they feel about that change that's coming down through them. And we, With um, Adaptable, we really have four kind of foundations of individual change management. So I'm understanding organizational change management, but I'm also understanding individual change management. And the very first one is curiosity. So how do they feel about it? Well, as their people leader, I need to be extremely curious about it. I need their feedback. I need to understand. Without curiosity, I won't be able to implement what they actually really need. And then also being curious within myself as a leader, what are my responses to that? What are my own resistances to that as a leader? What's my internalized um, experience and what tools do I need in order to be able to then give them what they need? So it's really about the conversation and the relationship between the two. Um, And then using that to give feedback and create greater awareness, because if we can create awareness around what the cowboy needs as a people leader, then we can move the organization through the change in a more effective way.
0: So just being devil's advocate, because I think yep. this would come up. I'm, I'm thinking I have some organizations that I work with in my mind right now, as, as you're talking this through. And, and again, listen, everything you're saying makes perfect sense to me. And it feels like it's the right way. I can also see an organization pushing back and saying, you know what, Stacey? That all sounds great. We we care about these guys. We love them to death. We want them to stay. But you know what? I just need them to go get the freaking job done. Yep. Right. Like, like there's an element of that. Like, I'm so busy. We're short staffed. Yes, everything you're saying makes sense. No, we don't have time for any of that stuff. We just need to go get the freaking job done. How do you respond to that? Because I'm certain that you've heard some variation of what I just said.
2: I get curious. I say okay. Tell me about it. Tell me about what's happening for you in that process that you're so overwhelmed and you're so inundated with all of, and I just need them to get the job done and that I respect that. So if I can understand what's happening for you at that level, then how can we also use that awareness and understanding to increase the ability to build a relationship between you and the Cowboys or you and whatever workers to to help manage their resistance in it possibly. And so it really just starts with the same modeling of, I want to be curious about your experience. What's coming down on you as a people leader, that I have so much pressure that I just need to get them done. And then how can we help create a structure and a scaffolding for you? And I know I, I don't, I'm not oblivious to the idea, neither is Jen, that we take away the pressure. That's not, that's part of business. That's part of organizations. It's part of change, but how do we roll with it? Because we need to understand it in all of these levels and address it because there's barriers happening.
0: Yeah. I, th- I feel like, um you know, time has come up a little bit in this conversation. It often comes up on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about change initiatives in knowledge worker roles, I don't have any evidence to support this other than just anecdotal, you know, my my personal observations and experiences, but it feels that knowledge workers are provided a lot more time to absorb change. When knowledge workers, when the people at headquarters don't do their job, their primary responsibilities for a half day or a day, nothing is really felt. Doesn't mean they're not contributors, they're not valuable contributors, but the reality is they can step out of their cube, they can step out of their office, they can not do their primary job for some portion of the time, and the business doesn't really feel it operationally. But when a cowboy doesn't do his or her job for half a day, like the operation feels that. And so there's this element of time pressure that is just the real world. And so we, even carving out time to have some of the conversations, you know, i I'm, feeling this pressure coming from the people that I talk with that are out in the front lines where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That all sounds great. I got to go run this route because if I don't do this, deliveries aren't happening today. Right. And that's this underlying pressure that just is sitting there, this chronic anxiety or pressure that exists in the organization to get stuff done. And I, I do think, listen, this is not to say that I disagree with what you're saying. Of course I don't. I'm just not sure. I think some of the resistance to this is trying to figure out where these folks can get the balance that they need to like pause and think and say, in the long run, what's going to get us the best results, which is the approach you're talking about. But it's like, yeah, crap, I still got 20 deliveries to do. And it's Friday at noon.
1: (laughs) For sure. I guess another way to think about it. So it's kind of in the vein of an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure, so to speak. Yep. And OCM is all about preparing folks for change, sustainable change. It's, it's not about making people happy. Sometimes that's confusion. It's not about making someone agree with me where, cause sometimes at the end of the day, someone may not agree with this particular thing, but it's managing expectations that this is the direction that we're going. This is what it means to you. These are the impacts. So, um, It's about preparing for change. If folks are not prepared for change, then you get to deal with the negative consequence. You don't get to opt out of it. You don't get to say, you know what, we are too busy. So even though you can't make your deliveries because you don't understand, you're not prepared, you you don't get to opt out of that part of it. And that's so you're dealing with the loss of productivity, you're dealing with the change fatigue, you're dealing with retention issues because folks feel like things are changing all the time, they don't know what's going on, they're crafting what 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 the change might mean, because they're filling in the gaps with worst case scenario and then reacting to it, a loss of trust with leadership because of a change not being managed well. So you either get to deal with the spin, or you get to deal with the preparation, And this is also where tools come in. I mean, if you think over, since we're in the the agriculture vein right now and with cowboys and the things that we're talking about, if you think about farming over time, it took a long time to farm when it was all manual. You needed a lot of people, a lot of people in the field, you're manually dealing with pulling potatoes out of the ground, since Simplot is known for potatoes. We'll use that example. And then tools came along and it made that job easier we have tractors we have fertilizer we have all these tools that that lead to increased yields and make the job easier same kind of thing here with the tools that Stacy and I offer it breaks down some of these things that sound like too much to do into snackable chunks that are actionable that can really move the needle on avoiding or mitigating resistance to change can really move the needle on preparing individuals for change without as much effort as it might think. And no matter what, you still get to deal with the spin afterwards if you don't prepare for that. So maybe it's an ounce of prevention for a pound of cure where you're spending some time on the front end learning some of these tools that can make that easier and lead to more successful adoption um, that as value to the organization.
0: Yeah. I think about, again, everything you're saying makes perfect sense. And I I wish, as we talked about prior to starting this conversation uh, formally on the podcast today, you know, almost every organization that I interact with on the podcast and in my day job could use some significant investments in change management across the board. I tend to be most involved when it's dealing with some sort of digital transformation that's going on. So there tends Mm -hmm. to be more like your role uh, where you were talking about the Oracle applications and things like that. It's, it's a little bit more familiar along those lines, but it always seems like change management is one of those things that is hard to convince leadership to invest in before. And then when things start hitting the fan later, Uh There's just like, oh, we, we really needed, yeah. <laughs> and then they, I feel like they they come to professionals like you and say, "Hey, can you come sprinkle a little of that change management stuff on this project? Because it's you know it's going to hell in a handbasket. And we really need to get this thing back on track, right?" And of course, that's the absolute wrong time to to be having that conversation. So, my question to you is: Is there some way to help make the case that the business case, the ROI? And I don't just mean dollars spent and, and then what dollars do you get back? Although, of course, that's going to be part of the question or objection. But the other thing is, from a time standpoint, yes, we're saying prevention is, you know, an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure or whatever. Like, okay, how do we convince them then to invest upfront and be proactive when the deliveries still have to get done today? How can we make that argument better to say, let's shift this to being proactive do we say to them the leaders that are responsible for these decisions yeah you're going to have to accept making 15 deliveries today you're not going to make 5 of those deliveries is there some way to rationalize that and say you're you're not going to do it today but if you don't do if you don't accept that miss today next friday you're going to not make 10 the friday after that you're not going to make 15 right is there some way to make the case in that way that kind of rationalizes what feels irrational to them
1: so it's uh, the track that you're going down where it's more about long-term thinking. It's more about strategy. Sometimes when we think about change, we think of it from a tree level, so to speak. We think about that one project, that one change that's happening. Yeah. But if you shift your mindset to the forest level, so all the trees, not just one tree out of context, and you think long-term about the entire forest, then that's where some of these um, justifications, so to speak, come in, you know, growing that change capability, investing some time in implementing the tools that you need that can be used for a longer term change can help you with that ROI. If you're looking, so forward thinking, looking for sure. Also retroactive looking can help make that case as well. I think everyone has both a really stacked strategic plan looking forward to grow and scale their business. They also have examples looking backwards of things that maybe didn't work as well that change management could have made adoption levels better. And so I think it's that could be part of the equation for folks. I also think change capability can be a component of everyone's role. It is, you know, similar to what you were mentioning earlier, where sometimes frontline supervisors are the best of the the worker. And so they're promoted to be a leader, but they don't necessarily have the leadership skills. And so there's, there is an advantage of investing in leadership training so they do a better job long-term being a leader. Same kind of thing with OCM, where you don't need a dedicated change practitioner team. It can be a capability that is learned by all to really leverage, use more of a leveraged model where everyone is playing a role in moving change forward. And that's actually part of what Stacey and I do. Is we we're not so much coming in and doing the implementation of change, as it is focused on the capability and tools. So here are some of the tools that you can use. Here are some of the capabilities that can help you with moving that needle on change long term. Which is a. Go ahead. I could. Can, can go you ahead, want to say go something. ahead. Yeah. New um. Which could be part of that ROI. So, there's so much research in how change, a real focus on change, um, on the people side of change, can lead to faster adoption, a reduction of lack of productivity times, um, can really move that needle, deal with change fatigue, things like that. I think that's pretty, there's a lot of awareness on that. And so, really, the other side of that is the capability side.
0: Yeah. I was... In my head, as you were describing that, I was kind of marrying up a few things at the same time, which is one, there's there are a few versions of this research, and I'm not going to quote them specifically, but uh, my summary is that somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% of enterprise software projects are deemed to fail. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we know that, yet this year, probably billions of dollars have been spent on new projects, that statistically, mm-hmm. sixty to seventy percent of them are going to fail to reach their objectives. Mm-hmm. And so, when you were talking about, you know, kind of looking in the rearview mirror a little bit, that struck a chord with me because I'm, I'm thinking that's part of the way to help change perspectives is to look back and say, well, let's think about the last time you implemented an ERP or the last time you implemented a warehouse management solution or the last time you implemented some technology that you yeah. thought was going to improve the business by ten x. Where are you today? Right. And and why do you think it didn't work? I do think sometimes the problem, the finger will get pointed at the technology vendor, the implementation company that you know that they hired, you know the consulting mm-hmm. company that did the implementation. I think there'll be a lot of finger pointing probably as you try to do that discovery. But I bet in a disproportionate number of those cases, there was a change management miss as part of that implementation where the expectations in reality were never really aligned very well. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, the organization yeah. just gets fatigued trying to jam that thing into success, mm-hmm. deems it a failure. And then before you know it, we're back to shopping for another vendor again, right? And so I, I'm i just yeah. thinking about that in the context mm-hmm. of your tools and your practice. How can we learn from that experience and say, okay, well, statistically speaking, you're probably going to fail by about a 65% chance. So what can we do to set this next change on a better course to increase the odds for success?
1: I guess one way to think about it is oftentimes when we're thinking about the change, we're thinking about the technology or the policy or whatever the change is. So in the example with the the digital transformations that happen and it's massive ERP systems and we're talking about tools, if you are relying on a human to do something differently for that technology to meet an objective, that's where FCM comes in. Mm -hmm. Because it's really easy to say, hey, guys, one of the behaviors that we need to do is we gotta trust the system now because we're implementing this new system and you gotta get rid of your Excel worksheets and your sticky notes and you have to trust the system. But that's a really big shift for people to make, especially if they've used their sticky note method for the last 20 years. And now you're asking them to use a technology. And so this is exactly where OCM comes in. This is the people side. It is the build it and they, if you build it, they will come kind of thing, only works in the movies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work with technology and there or with a lot of different kinds of change. And if you're relying on humans as part of the ROI, then tools and resources to support humans through that journey, which is not synonymous with clicks training on the tool at Goat Life. That's a, a, an important component of it, but it's just not enough to support people through that transformation as well.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Stacey, I'm, I'm going to take, I want to take one more um, swing at, at this problem, but from a, another perspective, because when Jennifer was talking about, you know, the, the user migrating off of what they knew, which was the sticky notes, you know, of, of handling something. And now we're telling them to do something different. Um, I, I believe many times the individuals, when there is a digital transformation initiative are threatened by the technology. And I'm wondering what you can share from the the human side of that at the individual level, about the vulnerability that they may feel as part of this change and and what things that we can be doing to help understand the vulnerability better and, and perhaps help, you know, kind of resolve that, that source of friction.
2: I think you bring up a good point of what Jen and I tried to accomplish in that. Humans oftentimes will polarize. We get really used to what we know and we like it, and we don't like to change. It's uncomfortable. And in organizational change, sometimes we see, sometimes it can feel like an either or: the organization or the people. And they're really it's an and. And so, how are we bringing the and in terms of the vulnerability of the humans, in addition to the vulnerability of the change? And in this process really saying we're trying to not just see it as only an organization what does the organization need we're saying what do the people need in order to fuel the organization and if we can give the people what they need if we can understand humans resistance to change if we can understand um, the ways that we oftentimes will polarize and say it's an either or i've either got to do this or i've got to do that And we say, okay, but how do we help you bring together the pieces to create an and? You have to do this many deliveries today. And I can understand the resistance to that. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be aware. I'm going to be aware of how I'm showing up as a leader. And how am I influencing them to make the change? Because sometimes humans like to be heard. Humans like to be understood. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to do everything they say. It's impossible for an organization to implement everybody's wishes and wants. It's absolutely impossible. But as a leader, am I still helping my people to feel heard? Am I still helping get their feedback? Am I still helping lead them through the change? But I have to know, as a leader, my own experience with that. Or I'm going to end up just saying, you've got to do 15 deliveries today, get it done and get it done now, which, which they're not wrong. Yep. And what else am I doing to help understand and support that?
0: I have no business, uh, offering suggestions from a, a, an OCM standpoint, but I, I think where some of the technologists miss in the communication is we do, and I've myself in that category, by the way. I'm more of a technologist than an OCM professional, but for sure. So we do get pretty enamored with the technology we're trying to implement with the automation that it's bringing. And even though we know that humans are going to interact with it, I do think that whether it's said explicitly or not, there's a feeling that comes across as part of that project that it is going to replace the humans or replace some of their role. And actually there's some truth to that. I think one of the mistakes that's made is the folks responsible for that implementation and the communication often shy away from that reality. And And a leader said something to me I want to share with you that I thought was really uh, profound recently, he said, as we automate more and more of the tasks for the humans, the roles that remain for the humans are more complex and depend on those humans even more. Because if they were that easy and repetitive, we'd use technology to automate them, right? So the things that are left are those things that require nuance, right? There's, I have to look at this from a few different angles. It's not just something that can be done on a decision tree, because if it was, somebody would write a script to make that problem go away. But I don't think we're doing a great job of communicating to those folks to say, no, this is actually an uplift of your role. Yes, we're going to take away the sticky notes. I know they make you feel comfortable, but we're going to take them away because it's a crappy way of tracking inventory, okay? (laughs) But your role now is going to be elevated to this other thing that the technology is not going to do. I don't think that ever comes across in the 65% of failures of technology implementations. I don't think that part comes across. And so what I've witnessed is I feel like most of what's left for the users to feel is the threat without feeling the potential for uplift. Of what their role can become in in this you know in the new system state. Now, I'm wondering. I'd love mm-hmm. to get both of your perspectives on that.
2: Well, and I thought. Uh, oh nope, you go. Okay. Um, I think think about what that person is feeling. That my, I could lose my job. I could be replaced by this. I could. It invokes fear in me. And what does fear do? It makes me resist. And if I resist the change, then how is the organization going to be able to move through? Because I need my people. And so as a leader, am I also, am I thinking on multiple levels of how am I working with the fear of this individual while also supporting them to understand the change? Because otherwise we just get the resistance of it. I'm just going to be replaced. And we're talking about my livelihood. And if we're talking about my livelihood, I'm going to have a really hard time buying onto this idea if I don't understand it in its entirety. And as a people leader, if all I'm thinking about is the change and I forget about my people, that whole piece of it gets left out.
0: And I've seen in users and under the circumstances that you just talked about, sabotage the system. Yeah. In, in all the way up to and including mm-hmm. putting tools through the technology, like beating the technology up physically, oh. literally, breaking stuff, sabotaging the solution and saying it's not going to be durable enough for this environment. It's not going to work here, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I I really think a lot of those, like that was an, a crazy level of stress and anxiety yes. that had been put on those employees The reality was 0% of them were on the chopping block as a result of that technology implementation. It was actually to help them, to help improve the operation, to help improve customer experience and everything else. Those employees felt so threatened that they were literally breaking equipment. It was an irrational response to something. And um, so I've thought about that experience and I've wondered, could that team have gotten out to those folks a little bit? More proactively to address some of that. Jennifer, maybe you have your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I do actually. And um, one of the tools that we can use for this is a change impact assessment, and it is really looking at how does this change impact people. So it that coupled with the why can help folks. Um, not have negative reactions like that. So in this particular case, my read on it from my perspective is likely that no one went out to this group and said, hey, this is how it's going to impact you. There was maybe a lot of conversation about this is why we have to automate. This is what it's going to do for our company. But the added step of figuring out how does that impact that individual and the reality that their job's not going away, because the work change in the workplace is such high stakes, it's very human nature to go to the worst case scenario and react to it. So no one's telling me my job's gone. I know that automation can eliminate positions. So obviously I'm, I'm probably out of a job. And when no one's saying anything about that, that, that um, anxiety can just build and grow. And I would actually say it's pretty, maybe it's not irrational. Maybe it's rational to, if you are just hanging on waiting to be chopped any second at your job that maybe that's a i don't know about beating up the technology is okay but the anxiety part of it that's that's maybe a reasonable human response and this change impact assessment i mean if you couple that with where we started our conversation where you're thinking about individual stakeholder groups not doing a one-size-fits-all but thinking through what are our desks who are our stakeholders we have deskless workers we have people leaders we have folks in hq we have our vendors that we're working with. We have our customers. we thinking through all these different groups and then coupling that with a change impact assessment where you can start with that change trigger. We're implementing this new technology. Looking at the context uh, that the individual will experience. By context, I mean current state compared to future state. So if I'm a stakeholder that I'm using technology, but now it's a new technology, that's a different kind of support that I need than if I'm an end user who's always used sticky notes, now I have to use this technology. I'm gonna need more support with that lift. And this change impact assessment can also help you look through the dimensions of change. I think one thing that um, technologists sometimes miss is that it's the change is more than just the technology and, you know, and you have these wizards who can do this amazing technology stuff that changes the whole world, but that's just the trigger point of the change. What it means, it might have an influence on process for sure, technology for sure, but also mindsets, behaviors, culture changes, and some of those things are what are addressed in FCM so that you avoid the the resistance that can pop up if not. And you're exactly right. Communicating really clearly managing those expectations. Hey, your job is safe. Or actually if your job's not safe, being really clear about that and being quick to be clear about that. Hey, we're going this direction and this is what it means for you. That can help move the needle with that. One thing you really wanna stay away from is, um, oh, how do I even say it? Emphasizing reality over optimism. Is a way to say that you don't want to go in with flowery language or, oh, hey, this is going to be the best thing ever. And you're just going to love it. It's fantastic. Everyone's job safe. In fact, we're going to get more people, especially if you don't know that that's true or if you know that it's not the reality. Being really people can see right through that when it's not genuine. People see that. I mean, little tiny kids see when mom and dad are they know that you're hiding candy behind your back because they can just tell doesn't matter what you say. That's an innate human Ability, And so when you're hearing a communication that's not genuine or maybe hiding things, folks pick up on that. And so the, really the best practice is to emphasize that reality over optimism and be really clear with what are the change impacts to your role and then supporting folks through that change.
0: I Want to come back to something I, I said I, I referred to it as irrational and I realized when, when you responded to that, you know, that that may be a bit of a judgmental way to describe it. it you're right. It 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 is rational. And, and I'm in no position to say that their reaction to something is is irrational. It may be very rational. And and I think in a lot of cases it may be because they've had previous experiences, maybe with that employer mm-hmm. or a previous employer, yes, where they saw some of the implications of that. Um so I, I think that's a, a fair point, and I wanted to just kind of correct my my statement on that. The other thing, and we're already running out of time here, so I I want to kind of wrap up on this topic here, but you you just alluded to something that I was thinking about, which is really about this transparency. I tend to err on the side of brutal transparency, even when it's uncomfortable. I know that's not a, a position that all leaders feel comfortable with, but I've never seen it not bite somebody in the ass if they try to do it the other way. And it, it, I find that so incredibly frustrating. And it's all the things that you just said, Jennifer, about, oh, listen, the reality may be there may be a 10% reduction in workforce, right? But here's how we're going to handle that. There's going to be some natural attrition, right? And mm-hmm. we have 10 job openings right now, and we're just not going to backfill them, right? Um, like So mm-hmm. bringing that reality to it, I, I think one of the things that the theme to me that's missing in a lot of these cases is trust, is trust yeah. between headquarters and the people not at headquarters, right? Which tend to be frontline employees, which is why we have the podcast that we have, because I do think that there's this line of delineation between the stories that are told at headquarters versus that reality that many of the men and women on the front lines experience. And there's a distrust between those two groups. It's them versus us. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's heard me tell the story about Eric, the truck driver, I won't repeat it now, because I've probably told it 20 times in this podcast, but like when he told me the story about his insecurities about this tech change that was coming, he literally pointed to the building. There was this; it was like a very visceral reaction and physical on his part too. That he was pointing to where the people at headquarters were, that inflicted this discomfort on him, and that has really sat with me. It's why I've told the damn story so many times because there is this kind of us versus them thing, and I I think it's uh okay so. I can't be the only one to recognize this. You both recognize mm-hmm. this. And I'm sure many other folks in this, uh, you know, that are implementing change recognize this. We have to get better at dealing with the trust between mm-hmm. these these stakeholders. And so I'd just like to, maybe we can wrap up and maybe each of you can comment. I mean, do you think I'm full of it on the trust piece? Is that, or, or should that be at the top of the pyramid of when we're it's talking right about off. change? T- talk to me about that mm-hmm. a little bit.
1: Yeah, you're right on. And I, I think sometimes it's true too that, that HQ doesn't is making decisions without really understanding the perspective of deskless workers. I think that's in, important to recognize that. I think there's a leadership component of this that you need to just throw it on the table. Hey, we're in HQ, but we're all part of the same company. We all have unique roles that we're playing. We're not the enemy. We're, we're part of the same team. And you leveraging those people leaders... A, to share that message and reinforce that message. If you have a people leader who's going back to their group and saying, oh yeah, this is coming from HQ. I tried to tell them not to do it, but they didn't listen to me. That's going to influence their team not to buy into HQ. But if the message from the leader is, you know what? HQ is part of our company. This is why we're doing it. We're part of the team. We're going to help with this. That'll influence their team in another way. Yeah. One tactic that we use and maybe a suggestion that works for others is rather than sending an email from HQ that you're sending talking points to leaders because as boots on the ground, they have that relationship with the deskless workers. They know the naming conventions and the, the language that speaks to them, ask people leaders to share the message, give them bullet points of what the message needs to be, but ask them to share that message in their own voice with their own language. Then it's doesn't feel like it's a, coming from the mothership. It's something that is coming from their leader.
0: I think that's a fantastic suggestion. I hope people listen up for that because I I think that's a really good idea. And Stacey, I'm going to turn it over to you to see if you have any uh, final thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. Um, Part of what we've kind of coined at Adaptable is we're helping leaders lead themselves. Leaders know how to lead organizations, but do I know how to lead myself? And part of that is having the curiosity and the awareness of how I show up as a leader. So in headquarters, if I don't know how I show up as a leader and I need to manage all this distress and I'm doing it without transparency, then it's going to filter down through my organization. But that probably says something about how I relate to change as an individual and as a leader and what I'm willing to manage or not manage in terms of what transparency is. Justin's had this really great experience, right? With, if I'm transparent, I see positive effects in that. Not all leaders have had that experience. And so then sometimes as humans, because we're humans, we show up with our defenses against, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to look at that. Just get the job done and do it this way. But it doesn't create a culture of, I know how to lead myself and my discomfort, which then filters down through my organization. Because no. it's coming from the top. It's coming from these people. And part of what Jen and I really want to do was help humanize the organization because again, it goes to that polarization, either it's the organization or it's the humans and actually it's both. And so how am I understanding myself, not only as an organizational leader, but a leader of myself and of my people as well.
0: I love that. That's a great way for us to wrap this up. Jennifer, Stacy, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today And uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. We went a little bit over on our time. I suspected that that might happen, but uh, I think it's been well worth the extra investment and uh, appreciate you sharing with us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: All right, to our audience, we're gonna wrap it up there. Thank you for investing this time with us to explore others' experiences and ideas around technology adoption with frontline teams. Hopefully you could take an idea from today and put it to work with the frontline teams that you support. And unless this is your first episode, you probably already know that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. Yes, I spell it every time because it does have unique spelling. It's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode.